Jesus here is uh, speaking to people who came to question him about John the Baptist and other matters. And Jesus said, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious, gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and any, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Praise Christ for his glorious gospel. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank you for this gospel, and we thank you for giving us the scripture that you've provided for us this morning. Grant us, O Lord God, the knowledge of your divine words, and fill us with the understanding of your holy gospel and the riches of your divine gifts and the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. Enable us with joy to keep your holy commandments and accomplish them and fulfill your will and to be accounted worthy of the blessings and the mercies that are from you now and at all times. Amen. You may be seated. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Have you ever had that experience of total agony where everything went wrong and, and the world seemed to disintegrate around you? Dreams dashed to pieces, no hope for the future. Perhaps you and your dad always assumed you would be a quarterback on your high school football team. You spent your whole life training for that moment. <clears throat> Perhaps, but another boy got the position. 
Perhaps you and your mom dreamed of the day you would join the same sorority as she and her sisters when they were at the state university and you never even got into the school. The next day you discovered that the world in fact did not come to an end. Life goes on. Perhaps you thought that when you become older and wiser and more accomplished, you won't experience devastating setbacks like that. Eventually, people grow up and get a grip on life, right? Well, if Paul, well, yeah, eventually people get a grip on life. But the experience of the Apostle Paul is shocking to anyone who expects to get a grip on life. Now, here is this great apostle, a man who saw Jesus and spoke to him, who had a profound understanding of God and salvation, who converted pagans and started churches all over the Roman Empire, who wrote much of the Bible. Surely he had mastered life. But no, Paul could not get a grip on life. In desperation and despair, Paul cries out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If Paul was wretched, where does that leave the rest of us? Surely we are no better than Paul. And that's an alarming thought. We want to think that we're getting better. Progress is all around us, isn't it? Electricity, air travel, the internet, cell phones... all the conveniences and toys of 21st century life. I read an article this today about how we finally achieved quantum computing, whatever that is, uh, and we're almost, we've almost uh, harnessed nuclear power safely. But you, what about you? You're, you are getting better, aren't you? You're smarter and richer and stronger and healthier than you were before. You're a better Christian, aren't you? And if you're not getting better, What's wrong with you? That's what you're wondering, isn't it? That's what we're wondering. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you getting better? Well, no one is perfect, so we tell ourselves, and we tend to shut out and block off the bad news of our shortcomings because because life is getting better, isn't it? Everybody says so. Uh, That's the, the narrative of our culture. We're not backwards like our forefathers. We're not miserably ignorant like people of the dark ages. And it's frustrating. It's maddeningly frustrating when we fail to get a grip on life. You spent your whole life devoted to being a star mom or a star dad or a star employee. But, and it's rude to mention this, but frankly, the results just don't measure up to our expectations. Well, Paul's goal in life was to be the best Jew. And he was. He testified in his letter to the Philippians that he was the best Jew. But although Paul was the best Jew, he wasn't perfect. No matter how hard he tried, Paul was unable to keep the law of God. Even after his encounter with Jesus, even after receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, even after converting the pagans and establishing churches, Paul was unable to keep the law, and this was unbearable to him. All men and women are obligated to obey their creator, and being a Christian means following Jesus. It's an elementary principle that Christians leave sin behind and are obligated to follow Jesus. When that doesn't happen, it is frustrating, embarrassing, shameful, humiliating. 
or at least it should be. But Paul found that no matter how hard he tried, he was completely and repeatedly unable to do right. Time after time, the great apostle Paul set out to obey God and ended up sinning. In desperation and despair, Paul cried out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, you know that helpless feeling. I'm sure we all do. You see in your imagination the ball soaring poetically in a perfect arch and sinking snugly into the waiting arms of the receiver. You know what to do. You know how it works. And so you set the ball in motion, and it doesn't soar. It wobbles and falls 15 feet short of the receiver. Um, you know how to bake, bake, a cheese, bake the perfect cheesecake. You follow the recipe perfectly, um, and the results are disappointing. I know exactly what a high C sounds like on the clarinet. You know, I know how to do this. I've pr- but when I make a high C on the clarinet, it doesn't sound anything like it does when my professor does. And you know how to speak gently to your wife. You know how to speak lovingly to your children, even when they've been bad. Uh, You know how to encourage your husband, and you want to, but you snap at them again. Everyone sins. Christians struggle with sin. Unbelievers sin happily, but everyone sins. It's not good. In fact, it's very bad. Christians hate it when they sin. Some Christians get the notion that it's possible to eradicate sin in this life. Books and conferences promoted this idea, and some people were swept up in the fervor of perfectionism. You have to admire their zeal, but it's a zeal without knowledge, because scripture teaches no such thing. The truth is that Christians struggle with sin. The apostle Paul struggled with sin. Sin in Christians is not good, but it's normal. Paul was like all of us. He longed to stop committing sins, but even though he dearly wanted to do good, he found himself sinning as if against his will. Yet it was he, Paul, who did it. Paul did the sinful act. Paul knew it was he who sinned. He had too much integrity to blame his sin on someone else. Paul planned to do good, but he ended up sinning. And this led Paul to understand that sin is more than acts of disobedience. This is the key point here, that sin is more than acts of disobedience. Sin is a power that permanently lives in us. Paul was at war with himself. He was at war within his own self. His mind desired to do good and directed his body to do good. Yet sin, that power within him, was equally determined to do evil. (laughs) Paul's fundamental problem was not the acts of sin that came out every day from from time to time. It was the power that propelled those acts. And since that power resided in him, it was impossible for Paul to escape the tyranny of sin. He says that he was, quote, captive to the law of sin that dwells in his members, end quote. Paul was not only a prisoner of sin, he was constantly tormented by it. And so Paul cried out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? For it was in the body that Paul committed sins. 
Now, we must hasten to remind ourselves that our bodies are good. God created our bodies and pronounced them good. However, they're not spiritual. Paul's word for the things of the original creation, the good things that God made, Paul's word for that is flesh. When Paul says we are flesh, he's not referring to our organs and tissues. Paul uses the word flesh to refer to the original creation. Some modern versions of the Bible translate Paul's word natural man. Well, that's not really a translation, but what they're trying to get across is that flesh doesn't refer to organs and tissues. Flesh refers to the way that God made Adam with, nat- with certain abilities, natural abilities. Now, someday, we're going to have spiritual bodies. Now, they're going to be real bodies, material bodies, things that we can walk in and eat with, eat with and so forth, um, but they're going to be turbocharged by the Holy Spirit. Bodies of flesh were created good, but they became corrupted when Adam sinned. So flesh was created good but weak, and now it is corrupt. Good, weak, and corrupt. Sin entered the human race and propels us to acts of rebellion. Furthermore, sin, that power in our flesh, that power in our original creation, is activated by the law. Paul didn't have a particular problem with coveting, but when Paul learned the Tenth Commandment, Paul found himself coveting everything in sight. Coveting was not originally a problem for Paul, but when he heard, Thou shalt not covet, Paul began to want things owned by other people. Now remember, Paul was a good Jew, and he wanted to keep the law. So he set about eliminating covetousness from his life. Paul determined that he was going to stop coveting. Paul was was going to work hard and making sure that covetousness would be stripped out of his life. But he failed. He couldn't do it. Sin is a powerful power within us, and you can't control it. You can't control sin in your life because it's more powerful than you are. It's possible, and you may know some people for whom this is true, it's possible to cut out certain acts of sin. But, you know, when you look deeper into that kind of situation, what you find is that such people have simply replaced one sin with another. And you can be sure that if you find someone who has no observable sins, that person is going to be polluted by the worst sin of all, self-righteousness. Paul anticipated that some people will jump to the conclusion that law is the problem. There was no problem with covetousness until the law came. So the law is the problem, right? Since the law caused him to sin, the law must be evil. But Paul reminds us that the law is spiritual. In other words, the law was sent by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the origin of the law. Moses didn't make up the Pentateuch. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And the Holy Spirit inspired Moses as he wrote the rest of the law. So the law is spiritual and good. The problem is not the law. The problem is that the law activates sin. Sin in our flesh is the problem. And sin in our flesh seized upon the law and misused the law to create wickedness in Paul. Now, if you remember when you became a Christian, what did you expect? 
Or what were you promised? A life free of struggle and hardship? Did you expect Jesus to solve all your problems immediately? Did you expect that sin would disappear? We don't know what Paul expected when he became a Christian, but it's clear from this scripture he was surprised at his inability to stop sinning. God was at work in and through Paul in astonishing ways. Paul would have expected to accomplish with Jesus what he was unable to do before, but he couldn't eliminate sin. Paul still sinned and he hated it. So Paul cried out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Are we all condemned then to this fierce internal conflict between our desire to do good and our sinful behavior as long as we live? Is there no hope for us? Did Jesus give us a desire to obey him but not the power? Well, what good is such a gospel? The gospel is that Jesus is rescuing us from sin more profoundly than you can imagine. In chapter 6, Paul explained that when we were baptized, we were joined to Christ. And in chapter 5, he explained that Christ is the head of a new race. Salvation is not merely a get-out-of-hell-free card. When God saved us, he joined us to Christ in a covenant. Adam is, is the head of the original race of men, Everyone descended from Adam is born of the flesh. That means they have Adam's powers. Now, Adam has impressive powers. Look, you can look around, you can, you can see human beings uh, all over the world who are doing astonishing things in music and art and science and whatnot. The, the ability that are, that, are, uh, that are part of mankind are just astonishing. Every, but the powers of the flesh are nothing like the power of the Holy Spirit. Everyone descending from Adam also has sin living within them. And in in addition to all the wonderful things that all human beings are capable of doing, there is sin everywhere, sin in part of everything that we do. When someone is baptized into into Christ, he enters a new race. He becomes part of a new race. And Christ is the head of this race of men who are reborn of the Spirit. Now, Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.3 that we must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the word translated born again also means born from above, and the text clearly shows that that's what Jesus had in mind. Those who believe in Jesus are reborn from above, reborn from heaven, reborn by the Spirit. Baptism joins us to that new race that Jesus began, a race of men created anew and inhabited by the Holy Spirit, a race of men with powers that far exceed anything that Adam had, powers given by the Holy Spirit. Christians are a spiritual race with Jesus at our head. Furthermore, Christians are a free race. Jesus was born under the obligation to keep the law of God, and he did. But when Jesus died, he was no longer under the obligation to keep the law. See, Paul explains that this is a simple universal truth, and it applies to the law of God as well as to the laws of men. When you die, nobody expects you to keep the law. That's true in the spiritual realm as well. The law is still spiritual and good, 
as it always was, but the law has no claim on Christ because he died. He died while he was under the law. Now, Christ is alive today, but he's not under the law anymore. We're attached to Christ, right? That's what Paul said in Romans 6. We're attached to him. We're not under the law anymore either. The law has no claim on us anymore. Christ rose in a spiritual body, not a spot, not a body of flesh. Someday, all of us, all Christians, are going to rise in spiritual bodies. But for now, we're still in these bodies of flesh. However, when we're baptized, we're joined to Christ. And what is true of him becomes true of us. And since Christ is free from the law, so are we. The law is spiritual and good. The law is the word of God. It's the testimony of Jesus, the breath of the Spirit. The law is the power of God at work in the world. But the law cannot compel or condemn a dead man. And Jesus died while the law was in force. Now we're joined to Jesus, and the law has no power to compel or condemn us. Now we're joined to Jesus, and we no longer live by the law, but by the Spirit. The glory of the gospel is that we are free from the condemnation of the law. We're joined to Jesus. We will share eternity with him in wonderful new bodies. But what about this habit of sinning? Is there no remedy for that? Or are we, as long as we're alive here, trapped in this life of sin with, a hope of, with no hope of freedom until death? No. Paul concludes the chapter by affirming that Jesus will deliver us from this struggle of sin. And he explains how Jesus does that in chapter 8, which we're going to cover next month. But now, let's just pause for a moment and consider how to apply this chapter and what we've covered so far. Well, are you discouraged and despairing of sinful habits in your life or in the lives of others? Is there something wrong with you that you keep stumbling in sin? No. There's nothing uniquely wrong with you. You're normal. Sin is normal. It's not good. It's terrible. It's awful. But sin is the, is the, the condition that all Christians, all people find themselves in. It's not acceptable. And th- Now, don't misunderstand me. <clears throat> sin is never something we compromise with. Sin is never something we become comfortable living with, but sin will always be with us, or rather in us. And that means that it's immature to be shocked by sin. Acts of sin are produced by sin in our hearts, and sin within us is capable of awful things, and that's true of every human being. Your neighbor, your friend, your child, your parent, They're capable of awful sins. You are capable of awful sins. It's immature to accept sin, but it's also immature to be shocked by it. A mature response to sin is sorrow. Now, sometimes it might be possible to help someone who has fallen into sin, but acts of sin are produced by sin in the flesh, and acts of sin are evidence of sin's war against the spirit in a Christian. For example, if we discover that our pastor's sermons were plagiarized, and I choose this illustration because I am 100%, 100, 
200% sure that Matt doesn't plagiarize sermons. <laughs> uh, so I, I consider this to be a safe illustration. But if uh, we discovered our pastor's sermons were plagiarized, how, should we, how do we respond to that? You know, a, a lot of people are just shocked. But we shouldn't, that's wrong. We shouldn't be shocked, we should be sad. Sin in his flesh attacked him and won a victory. We might be shocked because we think, well, some pastors are tempted that way, but not Matt. Listen, folks, everyone is tempted, is capable of being tempted in any sin. And all of us struggle to resist temptation. Matt is a good pastor, but he's not above temptation any more than you or I are. And if you have not committed any awful sins, it's not because you're better than anyone else. You know why you haven't committed any awful sins? It's because the Holy Spirit has prevented it. It's because God has kept you from doing what the flesh, sin in your flesh, really wants to do. We praise God for our salvation. We praise God for delivering us from sin, as well as we praise him for the punishment we deserve. Now, sin will never finally win, because Jesus will have the final victory. But we should be brought to sorrow whenever we see sin winning a battle here and there. If you discover that your child cheated on his exam, a mature response is not anger, but sorrow. This child, who has been joined to Jesus through baptism, was deceived by sin in his flesh. There's no condemnation because the law is not in force for those in Christ. But he didn't act consistent with his position in Christ. He didn't offer himself as a slave to righteousness. He offered himself as a slave to sin in that instance because sin in his, in his flesh grabbed a hold of him and overpowered him. He doesn't need our anger. He needs our help, not our hostility. And this is true for your own sin. It's foolish. It's a foolish waste of time to get angry over your own sin. Now, sin is just as bad when you do it it's when anyone else does it. But anger or frustration accomplish nothing. The spiritual response to your own sin is sorrow, followed by repentance. Turn to Jesus in faith that he will hear and accept you and repent of your sin. And then go about the work that God has set before you. Trust Jesus to hear your confession. Trust him to forgive you and continue to walk with you. Now, Paul has a lot more to say about this in chapter 8. <clears throat> Prolonged agony over your sin can be a sign that you don't really trust Jesus after all. Exaggerated acts of repentance may be a covert way of trying to atone for your own sin. And that is very foolish. Very foolish indeed. There's nothing you can do to atone for your sins. And any attempt to do so despises the complete atonement that Jesus accomplished. Focus on acts of sin is misguided because acts of sin are not the fundamental problem. Our fundamental problem, as Paul discovered, is sin in the flesh, that power that we inherited from Adam and is constantly provoking us to commit acts of sin. If sin in the flesh were to be destroyed, these acts of sin would be far fewer we would be still, still would be harassed by Satan and by the world. But, you know, the Satan and not the world are not built into us the way that the sin of, of the flesh is. Yesterday, two Lehigh students came to our house 
to help with yard work. And we pulled weeds, a lot, lots of weeds. You know, the goal in dealing with weeds is to pull them up by the roots. Now, if you merely pull off the leaves, they just grow back. So I urged the Lehigh students to make every effort to pull slowly and carefully so they get all the roots. Now, some weeds have very deep roots, and it's impossible to get them all. And those weeds can only be exterminated by a powerful poison, such as Roundup. I love Roundup. <clears throat> Roundup is absorbed through the leaves, it's carried through the stem deep into the roots, and it poisons the whole plant all the way down to the tips of the roots. It kills every bit of the plant. Sin can be exterminated only by killing it at the root, which is sin in the flesh. When sin in the flesh is killed, then it can no longer produce acts of sin. Now, sin in the flesh is killed when the flesh is killed, of course. That happens when we die. When we die, we will be released from this power that, that torments us. But Jesus also, in this life, Jesus kills sin in the flesh. And again, Paul explains this in chapter 8, which we'll get to next month. So you all come back and make sure we, to, to catch what what Paul says in chapter 8 about how Jesus goes about killing sin in the flesh and, and, and the role that we play with him. Now, it should be obvious from Paul's testimony that we cannot defeat sin. Sin in the flesh is much more powerful and crafty than we. You may summon up all your willpower. You may enlist the help of friends. You may enroll in a 12-step program. You might join a monastery, and you may, you may see some temporary superficial results. But that's only sin taking cover temporarily. And there's going to come a day in which sin breaks forth and overwhelms all your defenses. You will be powerless to stop it. A casual reading of Paul's letters reveals a supremely determined man. If anyone could summon the determination and strength to defeat sin, it certainly would have been Paul. Yet Paul failed completely, repeatedly, and you will too. This failure is what prompted Paul's outburst. Yet Paul had unshakable faith in Jesus, and he was irrevocably convinced that Jesus would deal decisively with sin. We cannot overcome habitual acts of sin in our own power. You're not strong enough. You're not determined enough. You know, you're not disciplined enough. You can't do it. I mean, you can Im imitate it temporarily, but you can't do it. It's because we cannot kill sin in our flesh, but Jesus can and Jesus will. So we're not hopeless. Jesus is with us. Jesus is at work in us. Jesus is, in fact, steadily killing sin in our flesh. And we will see progress as sin in the flesh grows weaker over time. Now, that doesn't mean we do nothing. Another foolish, unbiblical idea promoted by some Christians is that faith in Jesus means we do nothing and just trust Jesus to change us. You cannot... The defeat sin in the flesh, Jesus does, but our role is to work with Jesus. Jesus is our only hope for overcoming sin. Nevertheless, as Jesus works in us to kill sin in our flesh, it may be wise to engage in temporary remedies for dangerous sins. 
Some sins like addictions are so destructive that it's wise to take uh, measures, strong measures to stop them before they kill us. <laughs> Drug habits like heroin and meth are obvious examples of sins that can kill. Other sins such as anger and lust left uncontrolled can destroy families and ruin lives. An anger management course will not make you less sinful. It'll do nothing to reduce sin in your life, but it might keep you out of jail while Jesus works to reduce sin in your life. Such a course may help you to navigate life while Jesus deals with that sin, and that, this applies particularly to children. It's better to force a child to obey you when you take him for a stroll around the neighborhood than to let him run out into the street and get killed by a car. Simultaneously, by the way, you should be in prayer. You pray that God be at work in his life, eliminating the sin in his flesh that provokes him to disobedience. Now, if you are here today and have not been baptized, none of this applies to you. You are enslaved to sin in your flesh. You have not been born from above by the Holy Spirit, and you're not joined to Christ and so you will spend the rest of your life heaping up a mountain of condemnation through sin after sin. You will, be, you will be found guilty at the final judgment and perish forever. But none of this has to happen to you. Everyone is welcome to join Christ. Everyone, today, this hour, everyone is welcome to join Christ. The kingdom of heaven is open to everyone who trusts Jesus. <laughs> so ask yourself, is it reasonable to keep doubting Jesus? Does this make sense? Are the blessings of knowing Jesus so worthless that you would continue throwing them away? No. So confess your sin today, join Jesus, and ask someone here how you can be baptized. Paul spoke for all Christians. We're all wretched, pummeled by sin, unable to defeat it. There is no hope in us to defeat sin but there is hope in Jesus. The conclusion is that Christians want to serve God and desire to obey Jesus, but often end up serving sin. We will never escape from sin because it's part of us, but the gospel is that Jesus has escaped from sin and has brought us under his care. We are joined to Jesus. Sin has no legitimate control over us, and therefore, Jesus is gradually releasing us from the power of sin in the flesh. We are helpless to do this, but Jesus is with us doing what we cannot do. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we praise you for such a marvelous salvation. You didn't save us from eternal punishment only to leave us struggling in sin, but you sent the Holy Spirit to defeat sin in our flesh. You promise us a future body of the Spirit where there is no sin. We rejoice in such a great salvation. But, Father, we keep trying to slay sin on our own. We are prideful and think we will succeed if we try harder. We are forgetful and lose sight of your promise to free us from sin by your own power. We criticize those who are struggling with sin. Forgive us of these sins also. Kill our pride. Renew our memories so that we may happily, peacefully work with Jesus in eliminating sin from our lives. Enable us to help, not to condemn those who struggle with sin around us. 
We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Please stand to Jesus, who freed us from the penalty of sin and is now freeing us from the pollution of sin. To Christ, who is victorious over sin and death. To the Father, who loves us with an unshakable love. To the Spirit, who guides and protects us through the dangers of this life. Be all praise and worship in earth and in heaven, now and forever. Amen. Amen.